0: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center, and today I am joined by my insightful, intelligent, and energetic co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey! And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. How are you guys doing? We are good. Good. Susan and I, before Carrie joined us, we're talking a little bit about our cleaning styles. And you know, now that it's spring, it's time to start cleaning. I'm not a big fan of cleaning, I don't like to do that, but we're gonna have a little get-together for some people pretty soon. So my husband and I are starting to like do our spring cleaning and you know, outdoor cleaning, indoor cleaning. Now, Susan and I were just talking about how she and her husband have different cleaning styles, and me and my husband have different cleaning styles. So Susan, tell me what you were saying about how you and your husband clean differently.
1: Oh yes, we clean very differently. It took us many, many, many years of period <laughs> for me to like come to peace with this. He does a couple of things. One, he likes to make piles and he likes to make things look better by making the piles narrower and taller. And also <laughs> StrengthsFinder is a great book. I recommend it for anybody. It's a great book. Okay. It's a great way of understanding how your brain works and how other people's brain works. Ah. And so my husband is what we call a maximizer. And I love this term because it brought a point of closure of like something that used to annoy the living crap out of me. (laughs) And now I'm like, oh, it's just the way his brain works. And so like I'm a strategic thinker. He is a maximizer. So as a maximizer, when it comes to cleaning, this means, hey, guys, we're going to clean house. So he goes and opens a drawer and goes through every little stinking thing in that drawer Oh! and in the meantime the rest of us are cleaning the rest of the house and he accomplishes the drawer because he maximized the drawer so I'm more of the like let's make it look presentable and then I can dig in deep well first of all coming from Texas like I never truly understood the meaning of spring cleaning until I lived in Minnesota (laughs) for three years and the true meaning of spring cleaning is getting the sludge out of your garage okay Ah. but we did a huge clean, like in spring of 2020, when we were all stuck at home and yeah. like, we weren't doing our normal things. And I really haven't done that in depth of a cleaning and I am ready to like go through each room and purge and just get rid of and feel so much better. What's her name? The- Marie Kondo. Kondo. Yes. Get rid of all the crap. A spring
0: cleaning in 2020 sounds pretty good because I think I sort of did a minimal clean then with the intention of somewhere along the line doing more cleaning, but I... It just didn't happen. I keep saying pretty soon, I'm gonna have more time in the fall and I'm just gonna go through the house and give stuff away. And and I don't have cluttered house. I, I like a neat house. I don't like clutter, but my husband and I definitely have different styles. And I always laugh when I think about our different styles. I mean, there's lots of things I can say about it, but we about got divorced over the way... He puts things in the dishwasher and the way I put things in the dishwasher. And by that, I mean, you know, I feel like you put them in the dishwasher, you put the soap in, you turn it on, things get clean in there. Oh, no, 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 not not for him. Is he a pre-washer? No, no, I'm a pre-washer, actually. But the thing that drove me insane, and it's kind of one of those things, I didn't read a book about it, but I've just learned to accept this is how he is. This is how I am. He will go back through. I'll put stuff in the dishwasher. He'll go back through and rearrange stuff in the dishwasher because he claims it doesn't get clean. Oh, Carrie's shaking her head. My so, husband does the exact same thing. That's and so- crazy.
1: I'm the dishwasher rearranger in our family, and it's uh, I yeah, can get okay. more. Th- it's not to get them clean uh, because I'm that strategic thinker. I can get more things in the dishwasher than everybody else can.
0: Well, that's one of his claims as well. But I'm like, you know, we don't use that much water, you know.
1: I have four people in my house who unload the dishes and I load. So
2: earlier this week, my husband was being a pill about something. And I was just like, okay, fine. And he had cooked dinner. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the dishes. So I do the dishes. I put everything in the dishwasher, but I deliberately put them backwards. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. That
2: would make my husband nuts.
1: Why do you do that to us?
2: <laughs> he has trained me that I am inadequate in loading the dishwasher. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes.
2: 25 years of that, Carrie. Yeah. Most of the time, I just don't do it because there's no point. No matter what I do.
1: Kind of like me in driving. I don't drive with my husband. Yeah. Like, you
2: know, this was this is a little more passive aggressive than I typically go. <laughs> like, usually I go straight to... Uh, assertive I think is the polite phrase for it and I'm like you're in a bad mood I'm not taking you on right now but I sure as hell I'm going to put the dishes in backwards and put the cup in the middle of the top tray (laughs) and then I went upstairs and played with my kids and it was great I felt much better did he make any comments about it no I sent one of my girlfriends a text telling her exactly what I had done and at the end of it I'm like yeah, I'm a badass. And she <laughs> just laughed at me because, you know, that's after, you know,
0: 17 years together, whatever we're at at this point, like, that was your love language for saying, don't mess with me, buddy.
2: Pretty much. And I think it's pretty mild because, you know, if I verbally go after someone, it is not gentle.
0: <laughs> I thought
2: this would engender some
0: discussion today. So I'm glad we this talked is about
1: relatively this. Relatively cathartic. Yeah,
0: we we're able to vent about this. This is great. So,
1: well, Susan, do you have a question of the day for us? I do. We have a couple of them today. Um, the first one is, hi, I am 35 and my husband is 40. I have three children from my first marriage. They're 15, 13, and 12. I was 19 when I had my first and 23 with my last. They were all conceived the cycle or two after stopping birth control pills. We are going to be moving forward with IVF as I had a tubal ligation during the C-section with my youngest was born. I was wondering how an IVF workup is different for someone in our situation. I have found plenty of information related to workups when you have a diagnosis or don't know your diagnosis, but would love to hear about what test, procedure, stem protocols would be used for someone who can't conceive due to sterilization. Thanks. So I would say you have a
0: diagnosis. It's called tubal factor. You don't but have. You
1: may have more than one that you don't know about, and that's where the kicker is.
0: Yeah. So usually the workup
2: for someone who has a known tubal ligation is pretty much the same with the exception of we don't evaluate the tubes because we already know what's going on with them. And so you'll you'll skip out on the HSG or hycose or whatever your doc likes to to take a look at the tubes Um, and you'll do all the rest of it like he'll do the. The sperm testing, you'll do egg and uterine testing. You'll both get lab work and whatever carrier screening. But in general, the workup is pretty much the same because we want to make sure that we know if there's any sperm factors or egg factors or uterine factors before we go through all the trouble of IVF because we want to optimize everything. And if, you know, God forbid, there's a deal breaker in there somewhere, usually there's not in this scenario. But if there is, we want to know it ahead of
0: time. Well, and the other big factor that our listener mentioned is she was 23 when she had her last child. She's 35 now. And, you know, I think people that have had children before, I feel optimistic about. And certainly at 35, I mean, I still feel optimistic for you as well, but that's 12 years that have gone by. And so your eggs are now 12 years older. And, and, you know, I think you'll do, I think you have a great chance of, of doing really well if your doctor doesn't find anything else. But that's typically another factor that's an issue now that wasn't an issue then. And so certainly they'll want to do a workup, like Carrie said, about your eggs. The other thing, one word of warning, you know, even if everything goes perfectly and it depends on kind of what center you're at, pregnancy rates are probably somewhere between 50 to 65 percent chance. So, again, not to be Debbie down or be negative, but some of the most disappointed, upset, sad patients that I see after IVF, if it doesn't go the way they want it to, are patients who have had no problems getting pregnant in the past have tubal factor from a tubal ligation and think, oh, you know, all we have to do is do, do IVF and we're going to get pregnant. And you do have a great chance of getting pregnant, but some people don't get pregnant. And so just kind of prepare yourself, I think, emotionally for that would be my piece of advice. That it, it may not go the right way the very first time.
1: I completely agree. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do one more. OK, this one's a good one. Insurance. Ugh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, a good one or a bad one, Susan?
1: <laughs> this is what the person wrote. Um, my insurance doesn't cover infertility, but my doctor ran it and gave me an estimate which showed $0 copay for my HSG. So I had it done and then just got a bill for almost $4,000 Whoa!
0: for an HSG. That's ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Would have asked for cash pay if I hadn't gotten the estimate first. Can I go back and ask for cash pay price or is it too late now and I'm stuck with $4,000 bill? Also, how do you price shop fertility testing? Because I thought that a test was more like 500. Thanks for your expertise. Ooh, insurance companies? Mm, ugh, they're hard to deal with. They are. They
2: are nobody's
0: friend. Nobody ends up ahead with an insurance company,
1: except the insurance company.
0: I don't know how an HSG could cost $4,000, is my first thought.
1: Maybe done at a hospital?
0: Yeah. And well, and you're right, the past ones tend to be done in hospitals. But I would talk to the hospital billing person or whatever and go, hey, can you please give me the cash pay price? I don't know why they wouldn't do that, really.
2: They're going to want to get paid for what they're doing. And so a lot of times they'll bill out the insurance price, which is usually substantially higher than the cash pay price, Mm -hmm. mostly because insurance companies pay us maybe 10%, maybe 10% the docs doing whatever study it is are going to get even less than that. And so I would call them and, and find out, I mean, like 500 to a thousand, like that's, that's kind of the range that I've seen before. Um, I would say at this day and age, like 800 to, to 1200 is actually probably a little bit more closer I, to what I have seen. And it depends on the area and who did it and all those types of things. But definitely call and figure it out. And when doctor's offices are calling to authorize benefits, that is typically a service that they're doing to you to try and help you along because they've got more experience doing it. But it is not uncommon to have people call and say, this is what your insurance will cover. And then when you actually submit, they say, just kidding. Like I have seen that happen a lot in multiple institutions and it's frustrating for everybody.
1: So it's not going to help at this point, but especially if you're dealing with other entities, not your doctor's office. So like if you're having genetic testing done through another entity or you're having some sort of imaging done at a place that is not your doctor's office, like your doctor's office has a reasonable amount of control and knowledge about what's happening within their office. But whatever's happening outside of their office... If you want to know pricing, know it specifically. Like We do our ovarian reserve testing through a certain company. That company can specifically tell you what they are going to charge, what they will bill to insurance, or what their cash pay options are. And there are situations where there are time limits for the cash pay options. But I would say in the HSG situation... I think they'll probably let you do the cash pay option. You just need to give them a call.
0: Yeah, one other piece of advice too for certain tests, for example, we have a lot of patients that don't have coverage for recurrent pregnancy loss testing, and that could be a few thousand dollars if you don't have coverage. And so what we usually do is try and give out, they're called CPT codes, they're codes for the test that tell the insurance company what the tests are. And so a lot of times we'll have our patients call and just say, okay, if my doctor orders this and this is the code, what are you going to charge me? It's so different for different insurance providers that there's just no way that we can really tell them what the cost will be. So the more information that you can get from the insurance company, the better. All right. So today we're going to talk about a topic that can be sad, but I guess the way I look at it is when one door closes, another opens. And so we're going to talk about when to stop treatment using your own eggs. And so, Carrie, you want to start out and kind of give me your thoughts on that?
2: So, as we're going through this, there's two general classes of, of patients. The people who come in and from the very beginning, we know, all right, we probably should not use your own eggs. And the people who have been through treatment and we're looking at the decision of, do we continue with your eggs or do we move on? And so let's start with the ones where you're at the very beginning. You haven't gone through any treatment yet. And we're just talking about, do we use your own eggs or not? One of probably the clearest cut points is going to be age because there are certain points after which it is very, very, very unlikely that we are going to meet success.
1: And when she's saying age, she's not saying what age is your clinic willing to go up to? There are certain ages that we know you are most likely not going to be successful.
0: And what are those ages? I mean, I know we can't concretely say, I mean, everybody doesn't fit in the same box, but what are you guys thinking about when you see somebody in their age X, you're like, oh, it's probably just not going to work using your own eggs.
1: I feel very certain it's probably not going to work if we're 45 and above. 44 is rarely ever going to happen. 42, 43, I'm very concerned. 40, 41, go for it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So the 42, 43 year olds, um, I think it's really dependent on their egg testing. Like if you've got somebody who's got a high AMH and a decent egg count, sure. We'll give it a shot be mentally prepared from the outset, it's going to take multiple tries. Why does that make a difference to you? What does that mean? And how does that relate to their age? So this is looking at the antral follicle count, and that's the number of itty bitty teeny tiny eggs that you can see growing on the ovaries at the beginning of the cycle. And that number is going to vary throughout your life. It varies a little bit from month to month, but it's a bigger variation from year to year. So somebody who's 20 years old, I would expect to see an egg count of 20, if not higher, for someone who's in their 30s, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20s, kind of what I'm hoping to see. Someone who's in their 40s, all bets are off, and most of the time it's single digits. And the more you have available, the higher likelihood that you're going to be able to get something. And so even though there are hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of eggs deep in your ovary, We can't access those. We can only access what's kind of come up to the surface and is more accessible to us. And so I always tell people like Vegas is known for magic, but I can't make the magic of something out of nothing. And so if someone has an egg count of five, let's say, then that's kind of what I'm shooting for. I'm going to dose you so that if there's any medications that can help bring up any eggs that are too small to be seen on ultrasound, that we support them, but
0: I can't make something grow from nothing. And so... We take what we have. So Susan, how does genetics play a role in this? Because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners have heard us talk about genetics and that's an issue as women age. Why does egg count make a difference if we know that a lot of those eggs are not going to be so good genetically?
1: So I'm going to back up a little bit and kind of talk about the basics of the egg count. Um, Women are born with all the eggs we're ever going to get. And when we were in our mama's tummies, we had about 3 million eggs. By the time we were born, we're down to about a million. By the time you went through puberty, down to about 300,000. We ovulate or release about 450 in a lifetime. And the rest undergo something called atresia or programmed cell death. They just kind of disappear. The rate at which they disappear significantly increases in the upper 30s and early 40s. And unfortunately, also, not everybody is on the same trajectory. So, you know, there's going to be some people who they lose a lot of eggs earlier than others. Now, when you're trying to achieve pregnancy and egg and sperm come together and one cell becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight. In humans, mistakes happen all the time. Even when we're in our twenties, half of the embryos we create are chromosomally abnormal. As we get into our 40s And especially up into your mid 40s, you know, if you're 42, 43, probably 90 plus percent of the embryos you're creating are chromosomally abnormal. So we're looking for that 10% at most. And that's being very, very, very generous from a statistical standpoint. And so if you have a higher egg count, we are more likely to get more eggs, more eggs thus result in more embryos. And we're looking for that needle in the haystack. Sometimes we find it and it's beautiful when we do, but it is definitely an uphill challenge at those ages. So it's fair to say
0: that the more eggs we get, the more we have to test, but it's still that 90% of whatever we get is gonna be genetically abnormal.
1: And I'd like to kind of give perspective that when we do a IVF cycle in somebody who's in their 20s and 30s, when we're looking at the number of embryos that we normally get to test, I would say that average is less than five embryos in most cases. There are exceptions to the rule, but it's usually five or less. And if you think that 90% are going to be abnormal, then we're missing five embryos Mm. to get that one. That's why when Carrie was saying, if you're in those older age groups, being mentally prepared that this may not happen in a first cycle and it may take multiple cycles to get to that embryo. If you can even get to that embryo is a realistically likelihood. I mean, we're always hoping to get it on the first try, but I call it appropriate hopefulness. So Carrie, with that
0: in mind, so say you've had a patient that's gone through a cycle, maybe one cycle of IVF and say it didn't turn out well, at what point would you say, well, yeah, let's try again or let's, or this is it, or or would you say that at that point?
2: So, a lot of it is based on the surrounding circumstances. So, just after one cycle of failed IVF, that's not an automatic, oh, you need to move on. You can't use your own eggs. Sometimes we do see later cycles are more beneficial because the body starts to get into the rhythm of, oh, this is what I need to do. Okay, I guess I can do that. But it takes until a second or third cycle to do that.
1: And we learn things. Yeah. And we
0: change things a little bit that helps with that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so, I would say if I have somebody who's getting good numbers of eggs, who's making eggs, embryos, they're just not good. Meaning, you know, maybe they don't have an inner cell mass. Maybe they don't have a trophacted maybe they start, but they're not quite there. Those are patients are like, you know, let's keep trying. And if we keep trying, we've got a good shot at making it. Now I'm a lot more willing to move forward when someone's in a favorable age profile, when they're in a less favorable age profile, you know, into their mid to late forties, that's typically more of a conversation of, okay, we tried it once with your eggs we can keep going you can do anything it's just what makes sense and i always try and be pretty straightforward of you know look these are your chances of success we tried it once with your own eggs and i think that that's less likely so i would say for a younger person if we are stimming and we're just not getting eggs. They aren't growing. You know, we've got a okay follicle count, you know, let's say five or six, but only one or two are actually growing. And we look at the cycle and say, okay, your stim went well. That's where we have more of the conversations of like, do we really want to do this again? And a lot of it is couched in terms of the main thing you're going to lose if you do it again is whatever the financial impact and whatever the emotional impact is. It's very rarely a damaging physical impact. It's just, can you go through that again? Because our ultimate goal is to get you a baby, not to put you through treatment, to get you a baby. And those are two different things that people don't always remember are two different things. What are your thoughts,
0: Susan? When would you say, okay, this probably just needs to stop.
1: I do say that it is a very individual to each individual and couple. I always say that IVF is not only therapeutic and that we're trying to help you get pregnant, but it's also diagnostic. If it's a situation where I have literally done everything I know to do, and we have very few eggs, if we have more eggs retrieved, I'm more likely to want to try again. And again, it kind of depends on age. If you're, 34 with diminished ovarian reserve. And we seem to have more of a quantity than quality issue. (laughs) Just like Carrie said, it it all depends on all of the factors put together. We, I can say we, amongst the three of us, not necessarily every reproductive endocrinologist out
0: there. (laughs) We know each other pretty well. (laughs) We know
1: each other pretty well in that we know that your goal is ideally to have a biological child and we're gonna do what we can to have that happen. But we also don't believe in just doing it for the sake of doing it. I know on Facebook earlier today I have this thing that keeps on popping up and it's like if there is a the smallest chance in the world we'll let you do it and you know that's fine if you understand that but I fear for my patients
0: it takes its toll I think emotionally no matter how what your mindset is going into it I think after you keep just getting beaten down over and over with bad cycles it's hard for a lot of my patients to cope I think
1: it is it is I mean I I did my IVF cycle my daughter's 11 so 12 years ago. And like I still remember the emotional toll of that. And it was probably in the top 10 tough things to go through. And and I was successful in that cycle. And the idea of doing it over and over and, and having very, very, very slim chances, you know, it's one thing if you're having some positive results and things like that. And and unfortunately, you have to. Base a lot of that decision on your physician's expertise. You know, even if they just got out of school, they've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) Okay. And I know sometimes it's hard in this day and age to not be able to put it in a definitive algorithm mm-hmm. and have an answer. That's why getting a second opinion is worthwhile. And know that you don't even necessarily have to leave a practice to get a second opinion. You can even get you know, a second opinion within your current practice.
0: Because we all have different opinions, don't we? <laughs> we all have
1: different opinions. And just because you get a second opinion doesn't mean you can't come back to whoever you were getting your original care with. Those are all okay things to do to help you feel more reassured. But there is a point where you have to find balance.
0: I agree with everything you guys said, but definitely age and AMH make a difference. You know, if we had a poor outcome in somebody that's 35 versus somebody that's 43, you know, I'd be a little more optimistic about the 35 year old if. The 40-year-old had a really good AMH, like Carrie said. That gives us potentially more to work with. I'd be more optimistic about doing it again. And, you know, I do think if it were me personally in my 40s and had a bad outcome the first time, meaning no eggs retrieved, poor fertilization, poor embryo development, or no normal embryos, I would say, you know, I want to do that one more time because we do learn things from every cycle. So I think it's reasonable and rational to think about doing it a second time because, you know, you'll probably meet with your physician and you guys will sit there and kind of think about, well, what can we change or how can we do this differently? You know, my feeling is after a couple of cycles, if you've had kind of the same outcome with either very few eggs that don't do very well, and certainly if you have... A couple of cycles where they don't make it to blastocyst where they can even be tested. I'm not real optimistic that the third cycle is going to be any better than the first two.
1: We've talked about egg count, okay, but we really haven't talked about FSH levels which I always think of FSH being more of a reflection. It's a combination of quality and quantity, but more of a reflection of quality than AMH is. What are y'all's thoughts? I mean, what I tell patients based on the lab that I use, generally speaking, if it's less than 10, I consider it normal between 10 to 18 is concerning. Over 18, highly unlikely to give us a viable baby. What are y'all's thoughts?
0: I would agree with that. And going back (laughs) pre-AMH, which I spent probably half of my career doing clomid challenge tests, that's really kind of what we thought. I mean, if it was over 11 or 12, it was not good. And certainly over 18 was really not good. I think AMH is more sensitive. I think it's more of a thing that happens within the ovary as opposed to FSH where the brain has to catch up to the ovary. If the ovary is not making estrogen, eventually the FSH level goes up higher. I kind of feel like that it's sort of a more of a late stage thing and probably a worse prognosis if you have a low AMH and a high FSH together because that tells you that's been going on for a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with pretty much everything you guys have said. I don't know that I'm terribly different on the FSH levels, you know, AMH levels once they're Less than one, pay attention. Under 0.5, really in paying attention. Yeah, I would agree absolutely with that too, yeah. Um, You know, I think I've had a couple of people with undetectables who were young and otherwise had kind of favorable profiles where their AMH didn't ultimately factor into whether or not they got a baby, but...
1: I've had more than one person with... An undetectable AMH gets spontaneously pregnant.
0: Yeah, I've had a few of those too. Those patients in my practice tend to be the ones that are under 35 with not good AMH levels. It's not usually women in their 40s, at least in my situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, any other closing thoughts that you guys have about when to make that decision? Because it is a very big decision and, you know, really heart wrenching decisions for a lot of couples.
2: I think we talked about this a little bit with our other previous discussions, but there are some patients who know from the beginning or very early on, I could keep trying. I don't want to. And it's an emotional decision. Sometimes it factors into a financial decision of, look, I need to do what's going to get me pregnant the fastest. And that's what drives the decision. And that's okay. You know, we get it. I would much rather have someone come to me from the beginning and say, look, this is really hard. I hate this. And I really just want to go straight to using an egg donor or embryo donor or whatever. If I look at someone and say, you know, you've got a really good chance of doing this on your own. We really need to keep trying. We'll have that conversation. But a lot of times those people are people who they're looking at the pros and cons and we could go either way. And they know for reasons that are not hard medical reasons, more the soft emotional component
0: of, look, this is not for me. I don't want to do this again. And it's okay. We get it, and we'll move on. Yeah, and I think having gone through this myself as well, and and having been successful, fortunately, like Susan said, it was really hard. It was emotionally really hard. And so, you know, give yourself some grace because this is a tough thing to go through. And you know, I would also recommend, you know, seeking counseling because it's just it can make you crazy. Just people can really obsess about it, and just it becomes kind of your whole world. And And I think sometimes if you say, okay, I'm done using my own eggs, you kind of feel like you've given up and that you're, you know, you just feel bad about yourself. And so I I would really, really encourage you to seek outside counseling. I mean, you and your spouse may be a great support for each other, but I think it's really good to have an outside third party to kind of bounce these things off of just to make sure you stay mentally healthy as well as physically healthy yeah all right well to our audience thanks for listening and tune in next week for more also be sure to subscribe and leave a review in itunes we'd really love to hear from you um you can also follow us on instagram or facebook so hop on and leave us a comment or an idea as always this podcast is intended for entertainment and not a substitute for medical advice from your own
2: physician all right we'll we'll talk to you soon see you next week
1: Bye. bye